I believe somebody wants to come back this morning, somebody who maybe has uh, been drifting. Maybe you've been in full rebellion, but you're ready to come back. Maybe you were on a good course. And you're not anymore. And you're ready to come back. Have it on good authority in prayer that there are some people here this morning who want to come back and eat again from the table of God. I'd like to let you know that that's not an unusual situation for a Christian to find themselves in. We have these times. We have these events. And we even have these seasons in our lives where we drift. And sometimes our drifting leads to rebellion. But I have really, really good news for you that invested in you by the power of the Holy Spirit is the power to come back. Is the power to come back. David wrote in Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I have been a sinner from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I'd bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Lord, as we come to this passage this morning, we pray that you'd be the teacher, that you would take the words of my mouth, words I believe that you have led me to say, you would take the words of my mouth and cause them to fall on every single individual here in the most unique ways that would apply specifically to each of their lives. Because we come before you, God, and we open our hearts to you. We open our minds to you, but we open our hearts to you. And we ask you to do your work in us this morning in the name of Jesus.
Amen. Well, I'm pretty sure we're approaching the end of this series, The Power of Your Life, just because my, uh, my attention is beginning to shift to other, other things. But God has blessed us, hasn't he, in this series? With a sense of, uh, of the power that he's invested in our lives. That because you've come to know Christ, and some of you are still on the way, and you're welcome here, but because you've come to know Christ, you've been blessed with the resident indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and you have power inside of you. And we talk about power to heal and power to evangelize and power to deliver and all these kinds of power, but at the end of the day, these are all built on another kind of foundational set of, set of issues, set of elements that really drive your life. We've been talking about the power to bring to relationship, the power to bring to relationship, the power of generosity, that that's not just an obligation, but it's a power that you hold in your very hand. And last week, the power to do the right thing, as we saw David over and over again, just do the right thing. At times, he had the opportunity to kill Saul, and he seemed to have the justification to do so, and he did not. The power that you hold in your hand to continue to do the right thing and just let time prove you're right. Just hold on, hold on, keep doing the right thing, and let time be your proof. Let time be your witness. Let time bear your, your righteousness. Well, today I'd like to look at, look at another side of the coin of last week, really, and that's the power to come back after you've done the wrong thing. Because uh, for all of King David's successes, he had one failure, one in particular. I'm sure he had many that didn't make the book. But he had one in particular that forever marked his legacy. And it was his failure in committing adultery with Bathsheba. If you turn in your Bibles to um, 2 Samuel chapter 11, it's where you'll see it. 2 Samuel chapter 11. So by now, David is fully king. He's fully king, uh, occupied his ordained position As the king of Israel, Saul is gone, so there's no more of that. But but David is fulfilling his role as the one we saw in the very first message in this series, the one who was anointed to be the king over Israel. And he'd been king a little while. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, it begins, In the spring at the time when kings go off to war. Hold on to that. In the spring at the time when kings go off to war. David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israel army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. In the spring, at the time when kings are supposed to go off to war, David remained in Jerusalem. That's the first thing to notice. And so what happened was he was up on his palace, and Bathsheba was bathing in his view, somehow. I don't know how that works. I don't know if the women bathed outside. It would have been catastrophe for most of us men if that were true. But somehow, he was able to see from the palace roof Bathsheba bathing. And he wanted her. And he was the king. So he sent for her. And she came. And they spent a night together. And from that night, she became pregnant. Her husband, Uriah, was out fighting in the spring at the time when kings go off to war. David remained in Jerusalem with all the women. 
When he learned that she had become pregnant, he said, well, I've got to fix this. And so he called Uriah to come back. He said, I want you to come in and take a break. You've been fighting out there so hard. Why don't you go home and spend the night with your wife? A little cover-up. Uriah wouldn't go home. said, my men are out there fighting. How should I have this privilege? Well, let's try the second time then. He got him drunk. He said, surely a drunken man will go home to be with his wife, right? Didn't work. And so he arranged for, for this guy to be in the front lines of all the fighting and arranged then for the army to retreat behind him so that he'd be killed. And then David could take Bathsheba as his wife. She's a widow, after all. That'd be legal. And we could cover the whole thing up. Looked like it was going along just fine. Adultery, murder. We were going to get away with this. It's intriguing reading, isn't it? Until God spoke to one prophet. There's always a prophet talking to God. There's always somebody talking to God in your world. If you're lucky. And you raised up this prophet, Nathan, who came to him and told him a story, and the story was about him, and he said, that's you, man. You've done this terrible thing. Baby was born. The baby became sick. David cried out to God. He fasted. He wouldn't eat anything. He just prayed, 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 oh, God, I've done such a terrible thing. The baby died. The baby died. He stopped fasting. Something happened. He went on. He continued to have Bathsheba as his wife, who bore him the son Solomon, who became the wisest man to ever live, became the next king of Israel. Somehow, something happened between that cover-up, something happened between that cover-up, adultery and murder, the death of a child, that terrible situation, something happened between then and David then going on to be the greatest king Israel ever saw. What happened? Psalm 51 happened. Psalm 51 happened. What I just read for you happened. And what Psalm 51, which was written by David, as you'll see in many of uh, your Bibles, it says at the time that he had committed this sin with these sins, basically, with Bathsheba, he called out to God. And he demonstrated for us that even in the most wicked kinds of intentional sin, there's a power somehow for redemption. There's a power somehow to come back. I don't know what your sins are. I know what mine are. I don't know what yours are. You don't know what mine are. I know they're all covered by the blood of Jesus. I know they're all covered by the blood of Jesus. And I know that inside of each one of us is the power to come back. The power to come back. I don't want to take that lightly, do you? I don't want to take that for granted, do you? But I know that inside is the power to come back, even under the most heinous circumstances. If we look at Psalm 51, I want to point out that I think there are four critical steps in this whole exercise of your power to come back. And the first thing is to come home. Come home. I want you to understand that when you get to that point, and your sin has found you out, or your sin has become so burdened, burdensome and so 
you're so guilt-ridden or filled with shame or whatever it is that's happening inside of you that says, I can't, I can't bear this another second, that not only are you coming back to God, but you're coming home. You're coming, you're coming home to the place that you belong. You belong in Christ. You belong in Christ, and you belong living in righteousness, and you belong living with the indwelling Word of God under the power of the Holy Spirit. You belong there. And when you come back, it's not just, I need another do-over, Lord. You're coming home. If you look at Psalm 51, and we'll go all the way to the end to make this point, um, verses 18 and 19, he says this thing that almost seems like it doesn't belong, but he says, in your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar, which was the precursor of Christ. We don't do that anymore because Jesus Christ was the full sacrifice for us. But, he's, but he, he connects this. He connects his sin and his coming back to the prosperity of Jerusalem, to the prosperity of the people of God. And he's saying, in coming back, I'm coming home. And he understands that when he's home, the people of God prosper. And when he's not home, the people of God perish. And you have to understand that if you're considering coming back, it's not just about you. It's not just about you. But it's about us. And when you're back, we prosper. And when you're out there, we suffer. It's not just about you. It's about the people of God. It's about the body of Christ. It's about the fellowship of Grove City Vineyard. It's about this place. And you're free to come and go, of course. You have a a, a right to choose. But I'm just saying, when you fall prey to the devil's tactics and get out there, and you're out there, it's not just about you. We're suffering too. And when you're here, you're home. You're coming home. You're coming home, yes? I have people tell me, I look for a church, I look for this church, and, and I'll be the first to say, this church ain't for everybody, is it? No, it sure isn't. This church ain't for everybody. You've got to have pretty, pretty thick skin to make it here. But usually by the time you get here, your thin got pretty thick, skin got pretty thick along the way, didn't it? Yeah. All right. But I have people say, as soon as my tires hit the parking lot, I knew I was home. As soon as I walked in the front door, I knew I was home. As soon as I heard the first note, I knew I was home. And they use that word, I knew I was home. I knew I was home. Because that's what this is. It's home. You've got to understand that. You're coming home. So what happens when you ask the question, well, how many chances do I get to come back? Well, how many times can you come home? You see, when you're not home, we're always longing for you to be home. How many chances do you get? How many do you need? How many do you need? One more? You got it. Just come home. Just come home. In Matthew chapter 18, the disciples said, Lord, how many times should we forgive somebody when they sin against us? Seven times? Boy, that'd be a lot, wouldn't it, Jesus? Jesus said, not seven. Seventy times seven. 490? You going to keep track? You're about up to 488 there, Mr. Gilmore. I just want you to know you're, you're skating on some pretty thin ice here. <laughs> of course not. It means there's no number. 
How can he ask this of us? How could he ask this of us? Why? Because discipleship is about being transformed into the character of God. Listen, you do not have the capacity to forgive somebody 490 times apart from the indwelling power of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit living in you. Then you get it. Then it's there. You surprise yourself. Well, let me ask you this. If discipleship is being transformed into the character of God, and the character of God is saying, I want you to be unlimited in your forgiveness, then what about God? How many times do you get to come back to God? If it's in his character to forgive, how many times do you get to come home with God? How many times do you need? That's what this means. Because what are you doing in coming back? How many of you like me have made the mistake, I'm coming back and I promise you, God, that I'll never screw up again? Anybody besides me? How long did it take? You're not proud of that, but you're aware of it, aren't you? Show me in the Bible where coming back means making a promise you'll never screw up again. Show me in the Bible. How about, how about making this mistake? God, if you give me one more chance, I promise I'll get it right. I'll get it right. I, I, I'm aware now. I get it now. Show me where that is in the Bible. You see, the scandal of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that in coming back, you are not promising to be good from now on, but acknowledging that you won't. What? The scandal of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that in coming back, you are not promising that from now on you'll be good, but you're acknowledging that you're sure you won't. And you need his help. You need his help. You need his rescue. In coming back, you're agreeing to participate in an ongoing journey of sanctification. God wants to change things in us, yes? But it's God who wants to make the changes. And no tall, bald-headed preacher is ever going to affect a change in your life. Or a short Jewish one. It doesn't matter. I mean, it does. no, no preacher is ever going to affect the fundamental change in your life. It's about God. It's about the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And in coming back, you're coming home and you're saying, Lord, I want to get back on the path. I want to get back. I want to continue the journey. I know I can't just sort of pick up where I left off because I'm back a few steps, maybe 10 steps, maybe half a mile. I'm back. But I want to get back on the path, the journey of sanctification with you so you do your work inside of me. But in coming back, you're, you're coming home. You're simply coming home. And the reason that you're always welcome back at the table of God is because you can't change where you're from. You can't change where home is. Paul says in Philippians 3.20 that once you come to Christ, your citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there. Have you read that part? Anybody get to Philippians yet? Hello? Come on, people, read your Bibles! Philippians 3.20 says that our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a Savior from there. So that's where our citizenship is. That's where we're from. Paul says we're ambassadors for Christ. We ain't from here. Well, you can't help but where you're from. You can't change where you're from. So how come I get to come back an unlimited amount of times? Because you're coming home and it's the same place. You're coming home. In John chapter 1, verse 12, Jesus said, Yet to all who received him, 
To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. The sons and daughters. Once that's done, you can't change that. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus told the parable of what we call the prodigal son. And that one son took off. And he he fell hard, didn't he? And remember how he was rehearsing his whole big line about coming back to the Father. Maybe you don't know. It's in Luke chapter 15. You're going to want to read this later today. He was rehearsing this. When he came to his senses, he like, i got to go back. I want to come back. He had this whole line about what he was going to say to his father, about how he's unworthy to be a servant. And he had this whole thing worked out. His father wouldn't even let him get the words out of his mouth. He said, welcome home. Welcome home. Don't make me any promises you can't keep, son. Just come home. We'll have a party. Being restored isn't just about you. It's about us. I want you to come home for your sake. I want you to come home for my sake. Second, come humbly. When you're coming back, Come humbly. Verse 17 of the Bible in the Psalm 51 says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you'll not despise. James 4.10 and 1 Peter 5.6 say the same thing. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he'll lift you up. When you come back, come back humbly. Well, I'm back, yeah, I've been out there in the world doing X, Y, and Z. How about that? You're not coming back. You're not on your way. A broken spirit. When you get to that place where you go, I'm broken. I'm broken. I'm broken. It's not a low self-esteem, self-deprecating return. Oh, I'm just such a worm. No. Jesus has made you worthy. But the door to return is always marked with humility. The lesson of sin is humility. The lesson I have learned repeatedly in my life in wandering from rightness and obedience is humility. It always requires a humble return. It's humility. This is part of the essential process of restoration to the family to be humble. All sin is the same in the eyes of God, but all sin doesn't have the same impact on people, does it? I mean, some sin is private and secret and taken care of between you and God, and some sin has impact on other people and has consequences that have to be treated somehow, dealt with as people. Some people say, well, if somebody comes back, you know, they've been out doing this thing, and maybe maybe this and that has happened, and they've proven themselves to be a danger to society somehow and X, Y, and Z. And how, how come they just can't come back and just pick up where they left off? You know, if God forgives them fully, how come we can't forgive them fully? Because God is made up of God and the church is made up of God and people. And so part of the humility is agreeing to to the restoration in many cases, some cases I should say, not in a lot of cases, but in some cases, agreeing, being humble enough to agree, yes, I understand, I understand. I know, I know it's not a punishment, 
But I humbly, I humbly give myself to that process of restoration so that I don't get too far too fast and fall again, right? Are you hearing me? Come humbly. When I see a lack of humility in a person, when I see a lack of humility with the body in terms of how they relate to the body of Christ, I know they're not coming back. They're just trying to get the monkey of guilt and shame off their back. To come up here and pray the prayer, but not be humble toward the body. I know they're not coming back. They just can't stand the weight anymore. Which brings me to the third thing I think Psalm 51 teaches us is come hard. When you come back, come hard. Come on. Get in here. Come hard. Come all the way back. I think there's a danger of a casual return. It creates a disingenuous confession. Well, I've got to confess that sin again. It's no big deal. I mean, I do it all the time. I don't think the humility, I don't think the contrite heart has found, has found its fullness yet. When you come back, you come back hard. If you don't come back hard, it creates the danger of this casual return. And come back not only to Christ, but come fully to the body of Christ. Did you hear this? One of the reasons some of you are falling again and again and again and again is because you're endeavoring to do this whole thing in isolation. And, and you can't find that in the Bible. It's about being a part of the community of Christ, the fellowship of believers. Not meant to live any of this alone. And I think coming back from Psalm 51, it requires a hardness, a let's go, a certain kind of humble boldness, if you will. If you can put those two words together, Mike. Humble boldness to come back. Look at the, look at the passage again. It requires an authentic confession. Have mercy on me, O God, he says, verse 1. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Verse 2, wash away all of my iniquity. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before. That's an authentic confession. Against you and you only have I sinned. Surely I've been a sinner from birth, verse 5. And it's it's an authentic confession. It's a hard confession. It's getting it out there. It's cathartic. It's emptying. It's specific. Get it out there on the altar. Get it out there. And then he makes a bold request, starting in verse 7. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I'll be clean. If you've been around here before, you know we've studied that part of the Old Testament where Moses would take the, the hyssop branch, it was like sagebrush, and dip it in the blood of the lamb and sprinkle the people. And that was the the shadow of Christ who was to come. And now we're sprinkled with the blood of Christ. But he's saying, we would say, cover me in the blood of Christ if we were saying it's a bold request, isn't it? I'm an adulterous murderer that you ordained to be king. Cleanse me with hyssop. Cleanse me and I'll be clean, he says. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Look at at verse 8. What a bold request. Let me hear joy and gladness. Come on, Lord, give me my joy and gladness back. I know what I did. But if you cleanse me, I'm not going to live with that tattooed on my forehead. He says, you cleanse me, I'll be clean. And then I can have joy and gladness. Let, I love this line. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. 
Some people are too superficial with God to understand that he's a bone crusher. You know, some people say, oh, God would never do that. It's in the Bible. Show me in the Bible we'll never do that. Show me in the Bible. You've been watching too much TV preaching to, to, think that, to think that God doesn't crush your bones. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. What a bold request. Heal me, he's saying. He's saying, heal me. He's saying, I know I'm responsible for my disease. I know I'm fully responsible for the position in which I find myself, but I make this bold request after my confession. Heal me. Heal me. Heal me. You ever wonder how somebody who smoked for 50 years can ask God to heal them of lung cancer? And isn't there something that goes through your mind going, mm, you get what you deserve, baby. If we got what we deserve, we'd all be dead. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Is there a single person in here who'd be living? What a bold request. Heal me. And then a desperate plea finally for renewal here. He says, create in me a pure heart, O God. He says, create in me a pure heart. He says, clearly, my heart's not pure. I don't know how many thousands of times I've prayed this prayer. God, unless you change me, I'm going to be exactly the same. God, unless you do something inside of me, I'm going to be right back here with this confession. You've got to do something. Create in me a pure heart, Lord. Oh, God, uh, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Renew it. Renew it. He had it. And he said, I lost it. Do not cast me from your presence or take your, what, Holy Spirit from me? The Holy Ghost in the Old Testament? Glory. Right there. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. A desperate plea. He's coming back hard, isn't he? He's humble, but he's coming back hard. There's kind of a humble boldness in this whole process of exercising this power. Ask for it all. When you come back in humility, ask for it all. Don't say, God, if you see fit someday, maybe you could give me a crumb from your table. Say, God, I'm back. I was out there, and you knew I was out there. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against others. I'm willing to deal with all that. You come. Come, Lord. Come, Lord, and renew a right spirit in me. Cleanse me, Lord. Make me clean. And when you come back, finally come for help. Come for help. When he calls out, create in me a pure heart, O God, he's saying, help me. Help me, God. Help me. Come for help. And if you're one of those who says, I'm ready to come back, I'm ready to exercise my power to come back. I used to be and I'm not. Maybe I never was and I want to, but I want to cross that line. Come for help. You have brothers and sisters right here in this room, in this fellowship, who want to help you. Come for help. You have people every week almost just stand up here and wait to pray for you. And I know it's a lot to ask in this, just the social environment to say, hey, how'd you like to come up in front of hundreds of people and get prayed for? I get that. You need help? You have people every week who are willing to pray specifically for the thing you tell them. Get help. You have people here who are waiting to forge relationships with you so that you can stop failing by living it in isolation. 
you have life groups. They meet in homes. They meet in all kinds of different places where you can come. And the whole concept of that is to bring you into company of heart-to-heart relationship with other brothers and sisters in Christ who can walk this out with you to the extent that you'll be open and vulnerable with them. They'll be that with you, and you'll find, you'll find the power of possibly covenant relationship, as we've talked about in this series. Some of you need the help of counseling. I could strongly recommend directions counseling. I don't get a cut. Directions counseling, they're called, in Worthington. And they've been a tremendous resource of skilled, qualified Christian therapists who can help you. They want to help you. You have a church here dedicated to a whole ministry called Celebrate Recovery. Wednesday nights, listen, Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock, people gather here. What do they do? They worship God. They celebrate people who are on their way to recovery. What else do they do? They hear a teaching about recovery. What else do they do? If you're ready, it's optional. You can sneak out after the teaching, but if you're ready, if you're ready, you can get into one of those groups, one of those groups that talks specifically about some of the issue that you're facing. But what happens is there are people here who are ready to help you overcome any habit, find healing from any hurt, and deal with any hang-up that may be effectively ruining your life. It's not just about smoking weed or drinking too much gin. It's about anything that's bothering. It's about anything that's tearing you down. come for help. When you come back, don't make this another one of those times where you pray the prayer and do pretty well for a little while and then say, how would I get back here? And if you're saying, I'll handle this on my own, then my question is very simply, how well is that working out for you so far? David demonstrates for us the power to come home. Doesn't matter how far you've gone. I think adultery and murder in the same and the same pretty much action is, is, is pretty serious, don't you? He came back. He came back. And God took him back. And God restored him. And how many of these psalms do you read that were written after Psalm 51 that he says, Rejoice! Rejoice! I can't believe we get to shout to the Lord, all you people! Because he came back. He was restored. He was given the thing that God originally intended him to have. It wasn't lost forever. It was there waiting for his humble return, waiting for him to come home to God. And I believe that somebody, somebody here is ready to come home. I believe somebody here would like help. I believe there's somebody here who's connecting with this message, being stirred with what's being said, that God is doing something inside of you, saying, it's time to come home. If you're a person who would like to receive prayer, I'd like to pray with you. I would like to pray with you to come home. So why don't you come on up and let me pray with you.